Hello and welcome to Diary of a Common Man. My name is Salim Lalani and thank you for joining me once again. Thank you for supporting me and a big thank you for supporting my work as well. It seems to me that a lot of my viewers have made an assumption that after leaving the Aga Khani system, I joined the mainstream Islam. That is not true. The reality is that I do not subscribe to any faith-based system. A viewer has also sent me a question in relation to what made me leave the Aga Khani system in the first place. What was the trigger? Let me explain. For many years, I had been observing things happening in Jamaat Khana and I had many, many questions. But asking questions, particularly stupid questions, is not allowed. Stupid questions, questioning the authority of the Imam, questioning the financial aspect of it, questioning the personal life and the example set by the Imam, these are stupid questions. Humanitarian work, or if you were to talk about uh, him being uh, a supreme being, that, that would be that would be very welcome. So, because I was not allowed to ask all types of questions, there was censorship. Uh, there was always an element of suspicion in my mind, and it was I must admit it must have been in my subconscious mind, because I did participate in all the rituals mechanically for so many years. Then came 2014. I was appointed a Mukhi of a particular religious meeting. Mukhi is basically a leader. From Aga Khani perspective, Mukhi is a representative of the Imam and actually he gets to play the Imam in the sense that he, he blesses people on behalf of the Imam in the Jamaat Khana. So, I was appointed the Mukhi of this Madlas called Fidai Madlas. We spoke about Fidai's in the last episode when we discussed Hassan bin Sabba and how he created an army of Fidai's who would basically go on suicide missions. This Fidai Madlas, the meeting, is held every quarter. And I wish to reiterate here that harming anyone physically for these fidais in 21st century is not on their agenda. So do not worry about these fidais that they are going to harm anyone in any way. Now the meeting itself, everybody wants to be a fidai because if you are a fidai then you basically are a soldier of the Imam and we are basically uh, programmed to believe that whoever is a fidai will go to heaven once they die because at the end of the day you are prepared to die for the imam problem is not every aga khani is able to join fidai madlas there are eligibility criteria to become a member an aga khani must be number one willing to pay a membership fee if they can afford it Secondly, they will take an oath that they will not reveal the secret meeting details to anyone, including other 
Aga Khanis who are not members of that meeting. And third is that you become a soldier of the Imam and if required you could be sent on a mission similar to what Hassan Sabah created for the Fidais. Upon being appointed the Muki, I was required to attend an induction. Induction is basically designed to just make sure that you understand how to conduct the meeting, how to represent the Imam, uh, how to bless people, what to say, what not to say, what to do, what not to do, that kind of stuff. And this Aga Khani Pandit uh, was conducting the induction and after he had finished, there was a question and answer session. And someone asked a question. Little did I know that this question or rather the response from the Aga Khani Pandit was about to change my life for good. Question was, what is the protocol of admitting a deceased member to Fidai meeting? Bizarre as it may sound, how could anyone want a dead person to join a meeting? But in fact, people do come and request admission of their deceased members in case their souls should be liberated. Anyway, the answer the Pandit gave was there was no special uh, protocol uh, you can admit the dead just like you admit the uh, live person and the person who asked this question she was okay with that response but i was shaken to the core because right at that moment this aga khan farman which is a religious edict it whisked past my eyes in the farman aga khan explains why this majlis was established and its historical background and the significance. And the gist of that farman is in the past there were fidais who gave their lives for the imam. Today the imam doesn't have any army or any territory but the fidai members are in fact his soldiers and they can be called upon to go on missions, life-threatening missions in the future if the need arises. And I was baffled. Aga Khan was suggesting that members of the Fidai meeting were his soldiers who could be sent on such missions if required. Now the soldiers on a mission made a lot of sense to me, but dead soldiers on a mission, that was out of this world and this Pandit just confirmed for us that we could admit the dead people in the meeting. All we had to do is to accept the fee if they could afford it, that is uh, the family members could afford it and make sure that all of the questions are answered correctly and uh, no issues, we could admit the deceased person. Now I was completely baffled and I wanted clarification in case I had misunderstood the Pandit. And with an intention to learn, I took him aside and fired the question. And guess what? He was as baffled as I was. A few seconds of very uncomfortable silence followed and towards its end, he admitted he did not know. He did not know the answer. 
and he started walking away. And I disturbed his flow and insisted on a response. After all, I was appointed the leader of an army and not all of my soldiers were alive. Now the Pandit had no idea how to deal with me because you are not allowed to question these things. These are stupid matters and you are not allowed. Uh, and he hadn't, he was a very experienced person, but he wouldn't have come across anyone asking such a stupid question. Anyway, I insisted he seek clarification if he didn't know and reluctantly he promised he will ask his superiors. Fast forward a few weeks. In fact, I think remember, I think it was about five weeks for him to seek a clarification. Eventually, I got a phone call from him offering a clarification. Question again was, how was Aga Khan proposing to send a dead soldier on a mission? And the answer, Imam has allowed the deceased member to be admitted. My friends, that was the last straw. My lifetime of devotion, payment of the sond, service to Aga Khan could not even secure a clarification, leave alone salvation here and there or a happy life here and there or good health or good whatever. It was now crystal clear to me that something was not right. I renounced my allegiance to Aga Khan officially. From then on, I decided to find happiness in this life and next myself. I would now take charge of my life and my death. This week, we will begin studying the life of this most amazing, my favorite historical figure, His Highness Sultan Muhammad Shah Aga Khan III, the 48th Nizari Imam, the grandfather of the current Aga Khan. Owing to his long name, we will just refer to him as His Highness. After Mongols devastated the Nizari settlement in Iran and Syria in the 13th century, Nizari movement literally came to a standstill. Imams kept a very low profile due to persecution in Iran. And almost 600 years later, 600 years of hibernation, it was His Highness who breathed life into the dying Nizari movement. His Highness was a statesman, believe it or not, without a state. President of the All India Muslim League, President of League of Nations, an equivalent of United Nations, a horse breeder, a royal, a socialite and an author. He penned India in transition and his own memoirs. At a young age of 21, Queen Victoria honored him with the title of KCI's E which is Knight Commander of Indian Empire. 
Later, His Highness received many many decorations from British, Turkish, German and Persian governments. For his followers, he established many institutions, educational, social, financial, economic and for the first time in the Aga Khani history, he constitutionalized the community. Apart from being all that, he was one of the richest man in the world and most importantly and most relevant to the topic at hand, he was the creator of this amazing religio-politico-commercial system that we will analyze in future episodes. Born in Karachi, present day Pakistan on 2nd of November 1877, His Highness was the only surviving child of Aga Khan II and Lady Alicia. He became the 48th Imam of Nizaris at only 8 years of age. His mother Lady Alicia managed the admin of the system while he was growing up and she was the most influential person in his life and it was she who exposed him to the European education or the Western education. His Highness in fact would become the first Imam in the Aga Khan history to acquire Western education. His Highness spoke Persian, Indian, German, French and of course English. And he lived most of his long life in Europe as a European. In 1898, 21-year-old His Highness first travelled to Europe. Queen Victoria, as we discussed earlier, invited him to dinner and conferred on him the title of KCIE. Despite the fact that he had no record of service to the crown at that stage. So why would Queen Victoria confer this prestigious title upon His Highness? Marco van Grondel in his thesis Across the Threshold of Modernity suggests Aga Khan gained a temporal status. Britain gained a friend well disposed towards the empire. Aga Khan gained a high degree of control over his movements. Britain gained a worldwide network. Aga Khan became a statesman. Britain gained a valuable set of ears and eyes in the Muslim world. Yes, British government were looking for someone to be their eyes and ears in the Muslim world. It is apparent that British had done their homework on Aga Khan. He was a young Muslim, educated, well-connected, well-spoken, intelligent and most importantly, he wanted to make it big and he did. Why was the British looking for a year and an eye in the Muslim world? It was World War One. Below is an extract from the memoirs of Aga Khan, which refers to World War One. It'll give my viewer an idea of how loyal he was to Britain. He writes in the memoirs, Russia and Germany were at war. The Germans invaded Belgium and on 4th August, Britain declared war on Germany. I had one overruling emotion. To go to England as fast as I could 
and offer my services in whatever capacity they could be used. I was in good health, young and strong and my place was with the British. Soon British government gave him an assignment. During World War I, Turkey sided with Germany, enemy of Britain and London was very uncomfortable. Uncomfortable not because Turkey was a military firepower, but it was Ottoman Caliph Abdul Majid's influence over the Muslims around the world. A substantial number of whom lived in British colonies, particularly India. And British wanted the Muslims of India to fight their war, but the Caliph supported the enemy, Germany. Aga Khan, His Highness was asked to use his influence over Indian Muslims to muster the support for Britain and its allies. Following is an excerpt from Aga Khan's speech that he made in India. He said, let there be no misunderstanding of the real attitude of the Indian Mohammedan opinion towards Turkey. There is much discussion in Europe of the position of the Sultan as the Caliph. The Indian Muslim does not recognize the Sultan as the Caliph and offers him no allegiance in that capacity. His Highness self-appoints himself to express non-allegiance of Indian Muslims to the Caliph. But did he really have Indian Muslim support to speak on their behalf? In the beginning, yes. A bit later, no. Because during his days as the president of the All India Muslim League in 1913, he was forced to resign when it became apparent that he represented the British rather than the Muslim Brotherhood. Karma, however, caught up with him after the world wars. British didn't really need him anymore. His loyalty and the services was forgotten. In 1924, there was a rift between His Highness and the local authorities over Ismaili burial grounds in Zanzibar. His Highness appealed to the British government to intervene, but they refused and advised him to deal with the issue with the local authorities himself. Bitter His Highness wrote to India office expressing his disappointment. These letters that I am referring to, they are available for my viewer to read in the British Library in London. He writes, I can assure you that nothing will hurt British prestige throughout the East more than the discourteous methods in East Africa. The enemies of England will turn around everywhere and say, look at this case of Aga Khan. After 70 years of devoted services to England, the moment he and his followers are of no direct use, they are not only thrown out, but kicked over by the British authorities and that is all that can be expected when one's utility is gone. In his teens, His Highness was infatuated with his first cousin beautiful Shahzadi Begum. 
but in islam you are not allowed to marry your sister whether it's your sister or a first cousin but he married shahzadi anyway in 1896 unfortunately the infatuation evaporated very quickly as it does his eyes started spending time away from home in europe unfortunately shahzadi did not take this rejection very well loneliness rejection resentment killed her before she turned 40 and when she died she was aware that her husband was having an affair with a 19 year old italian girl a ballet dancer his highness was a great patron of ballet dancing during one such performance in monte carlo a very beautiful teenager 19 year old teresa magliano catches the fancy of his highness gina lami teresa's co-dancer once narrated the story she said his highness was a regular at ballet performances one day when we were all resting after a performance outside the hall a journalist approached teresa and she was told that a very very rich man loves you and would like to meet you still married to shahzadi back home they met an affair began and it produced two children his highness however notes in his memoirs that he married teresa as per the muslim law in cairo and he actually did but he forgot an important detail in cairo he did not marry her according to a nikah contract he married her according to a muta contract many of us know nikah is a permanent marriage contract of muslims but not many know about a muta contract literally muta means pleasure muta was a tradition in pre-islamic arabia when men were away from home this contract allowed them to enter into a temporary arrangement with other women for pleasure so muta is a verbal contract which literally means pleasure but the question is how do we know it was a muta contract not nikah it was verified by none other than his highness himself after his death his will was read out and it confirmed for one and all that cairo marriage contract with teresa magliano was a muta contract anyway as we learned this marriage produced two children first child unfortunately died mehdi the little infant died of meningitis still unmarried their second son was born in 1911 this time the child survived his name was prince ali salman khan to this day the certificate of birth of prince ali salman khan is displayed at turin town hall in italy and it supports the muta theory it reads in the year 1911 17th of june 5 pm before me 
Pierre Carossa, acting vice secretary of the delegation, officer of the civil government of Turin, has come Dr. Alfredo Pozzi, 39-year-old obstetrician living in Turin, who declared that at 2 p.m. of 13 June, same year in this house, 17 Corso Porto, from the union of Teresa Magliano, unmarried, 22 years old, living on independent means, here in person as a co-declarant with His Highness the Aga Khan, son of late Aga Alisha, 34-year-old, born at Karachi, British India, living at Monte Carlo, was born a male baby who is not present and to whom are given the names of Ali Salman. Being an extremely busy man, His Highness was not present during Ali's birth. He saw Ali when he was a month old. But this absence from the home eventually took its toll. Firstly, Ali never bonded with his father and tragically Teresa died alone and resentful. Just like Shahzadi, she did not celebrate her 40th birthday. Soon after Teresa's death, His Highness married a 21-year-old French beauty, Andre Coron. He was 52 years at the time, but they divorced after 14 years. A year after divorcing Andre, at a ripe age of 67, His Highness married yet another beauty, former Miss France Yvette Lebrouze. She was 29 years younger and 6 inches taller than His Highness. Next week, we will continue studying the life and times of His Highness Imam Sultan Masha and his amazing system. Until then, take care of yourself. Goodbye.